for the record, we never broke up. We just took a 14-year vacation. From Boise, Idaho, and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly, again, weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Google the quote, kids. It's a classic rock. It's something you need to know about. But it has been about six weeks since we have done a podcast together. We will get to how we spend our summer vacations later in the podcast, but there's a lot of news to get to this week. It has been busy. A surprisingly <laughs> busy week on the education front for the first week of July. Let's start with kind of a shot across the bow from a member of the House Education Committee to brand new Boise State University President, Dr. Marlene Trump. What was the letter, Kevin, and, and who wrote it and who co-signed it? Right, and it's not just one, one lawmaker letter. I mean, Barbara Ehart, Republican from Idaho Falls, a familiar name to listeners uh, of the podcast, she was the author of the letter, which went out this week to new Boise State University President Marlene Trump. And in the letter, Ehart challenges Trump to disavow a long list of diversity and inclusion efforts that have been underway at Boise State since, you know, long before Trump was ever hired or appointed as president. Uh, These are programs that have been in effect for a while. Uh, Real quickly, what were some of the programs? There are a number of them, and and a lot of them were outlined about a month ago in a letter to the university community from Martin Schimpf, who was the interim president at Boise State. But I I think these are programs that go back long before Schimpf was named interim president. I mean, this has been... the university has had an office of inclusion under the president's office for, I'm not sure for how long, but this has been something that's been an effort for a while. What Schimpf talked about was trying to uh, encourage DACA recipients, for example, to apply for Idaho Opportunity Scholarships. Um, talked about uh, creating a, um, an American Indian liaison at the university. These were some of the programs that, uh, that Ehart cited in her letter she criticized the university for having a black graduation ceremony for having a rainbow graduation ceremony it is a long list of criticisms and concerns and programs that ehart was concerned with the letters it's a three-page letter and if you go to my blog you can link to the letter and you can see it in full a lot of these same concerns were raised by the idaho freedom foundation about a month ago right after Schimpf sent out his letter to the university community so there's a lot of overlap between the Freedom Foundation's concerns and Ehart's concerns and uh, is within minutes of Ehart's letter going public the Freedom Foundation put out a press release applauding the lawmakers for uh, sending the letter but let's talk a little bit not just about Ehart but about some of the other lawmakers who signed this letter, because this is where it gets significant, in my view. This wasn't just, that's a great point, this was not just like one lone wolf legislator with an axe to grind or wanting to test the new president in her second week in office. This was 28 House Republicans, as yes. well as eight of the 15 members of the House Education Committee. And that's, eight of 15, that's a powerful block. That's, that's enough to that's pass a, a bill out of committee. That's a quorum. Um, and yes, they're all Republicans. They're all House Republicans. And as you mentioned, eight of the 15 members of the House Education Committee. Also, uh, House Majority Leader Mike Moyle yep. was one of the, the folks who signed the letter. Assistant Majority Leader Jason Monks signed the letter. And as you pointed out when we were posting the story on Thursday, Monks is a member of Governor Little's K-12 Education Task Force. So this is not... 
it would be easy to dismiss this as one legislator, one outspoken conservative, and just sort of dismiss this as you know, a backbencher legislator uh, firing off a letter to the new president of the university. This has some, some juice behind it simply because you've got such a large number of uh, House Republicans signing on to this letter. It's almost half of the House. Yes. Uh, <laughs> basically half of the House Republican uh, caucus signs yes. this. Yeah, so, so there's some significant, uh, you know, there's some critical mass behind this letter. Now, at this point, as we tape here on Friday morning, we have not gotten a response from Boise State uh, to the letter. We have asked for it, and as soon as we get any kind of response, we will write about it. Uh, I've reached out to the governor's office to see if uh, Governor Little has anything to say about the letter. Um, if we get anything, we will have a follow-up. I've been adding to the blog post uh, a couple of... Uh, Democratic senators uh, who Democrat serve on the educa Education the Committee. The two Democratic senators on the Senate Education Committee have criticized the letter. Um, so we have quotes from Senators uh, Janie Ward-Engelking and uh, Sheree Buckner-Webb. Right. Worth noting that Sheree Buckner-Webb is, is a is a woman of color, and I think uh, in, in her case, she feels that, you know, you can feel from her comments that she feels pretty strongly about this. So it's a developing story. We will have the, the latest on it, but you can see the letter, and you can see sort of the initial reactions already at ido8news.org. Yeah, it's something that we will continue to follow and continue to pursue. But interesting that, like you said, the number of people who signed it, who signed it, and the timing of it. Right off the bat, yeah. you know, welcome to Boise State, President Trump. Here you go. And so will President Trump respond? Will the university respond? And how will they respond? That, those are things we'll be watching it's for. It's really an early test to see how President Trump responds to uh, the scrutiny that comes with being the president of the largest university in the state, in the capital of the state. This is an early test. And It'll be very interesting to see what sort of response she has. Real quickly, it reminded me of the very last story I wrote from the 2019 legislative session where I spoke to a bunch of members of the House Education Committee who said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but the world is on notice. We're the new sheriff in town. We're the power players. It reminded me of that, and it was some of that same crowd. Some of the same folks. I mean, you know, Judy Boyle, Bill Gosling. Yep. Uh, Gan de Mordaunt. All three of them were uh, co-signers of this letter. So interesting power struggle, even though we're right in the middle of the summer and six months away from a legislative session. Uh, it'll be interesting to watch this one play itself out. We yep. have a lot more to get to this week. I mean, it is a busy week. And Clark, you've been following closely a an issue, a program that we've been writing about for years that is finally sort of coming to fruition, the Master Educator Premium Program. The numbers are in and kind of surprising uh, as far as the level of interest or maybe level of non-interest in these premiums. I think that's what struck me about it. And so what the master premiums are is basically a $4,000 per year salary incentive that the legislature created in an effort to recognize, incentivize, and financially reward the state's most effective and experienced educators. This is for folks who have more than six years of classroom experience, including three consecutive years of experience in Idaho. Um, but this was something really designed to 
reach the folks at the upper end of the spectrum, the people who had been there the longest and are doing the best job in our classrooms with this $4,000 annual salary incentive, which the legislature is calling a premium for folks who get it. And there is a complicated application process involved with filling out a, for, a portfolio, uh, including documents and artifacts, evidencing your status as a master educator. Uh, but for folks who do receive the $4,000 premiums, they're good for three years. So you're looking at a total value of a $12,000 salary incentive. And the reason this is in the news right now is because they're just rolling this out. And uh, last week was the deadline for Idaho teachers to apply for the premiums. Like I said, lengthy application process. The deadline was extended until last week on July 5th, that I want to say. Mm -hmm. And what we found out is that 1,400, I think it's 1,405 actually, but 1,400 Idaho educators have applied to receive this premium. And the State Board of Education is working with a group of teachers who have volunteered to be trained as evaluators. They will review these portfolios, cross-check them. I think they'll be reviewed three times. And then next month, we'll find out who receives the premium. But the interesting thing was, if 1,400 people applied, the state of Idaho actually thought maybe up to 10,000 teachers were eligible. would be eligible yeah. or at least seemingly meet the minimum requirements based on the length of service and, and so forth and so on. So that would seem to mean that potentially thousands of Idaho teachers decided not to apply for one reason or another. And we and heard... Anecdotally, we heard from a prominent teacher who decided not to apply. Yeah. Idaho's reigning teacher of the year, Mark Badia uh, from the American Falls School District. He's also the town's mayor. Uh, I'm caught up with him at a task force subcommittee meeting this week. Idaho's rock star teacher who has a platform and is, I, I think, visited Washington, D.C. and speaks to the legislator mm -hmm. and is yep. held up as sort of this shining example. This would seemingly be the kind of person that this educator premium would be designed to reward. And he said that it was onerous. It was complicated. He didn't have the time uh, to do it. And so he didn't apply this year. We also heard from Representative John McCrosty who is an Idaho teacher, a music teacher, serves on the House Education Committee. He didn't apply for the Master Educator Premium. And uh, significant, too, were the comments you heard at that same task force meeting this week from the superintendent in Moscow. Moscow Superintendent Greg Bailey, speaking at the task force subcommittee meeting, said that he was agreeing with some of Mark Badia's concerns about how much time it took and the level of effort and whether or not this would incentivize and reward teachers. But he said, it is not my best top, top staff who applied. My top staff doesn't have 80 to 100 hours to be filling out this documentation. I thought that that was really interesting because the legislature wanted to reward the best, the cream of the crop, uh, the elite teachers, the rock stars. And at least in Moscow, uh, the superintendent is saying that that wasn't really reflective of the application pool that he's aware of. So this is getting kind of interesting. The legislature did set aside $7.2 million of taxpayer money to pay for the first year of these premiums this year. We already know, just based on simple math, that if every single teacher who applied this year were to receive one, and we don't know that that's the case at all, right. but if all 1,400 received one, that would be something like $5.6 million. So the state has set aside more than enough money to fund the premiums. Don't have to dip into the rainy day account. Don't have to worry about a situation where somebody would potentially meet the criteria, but the state would run out of money. Those don't appear to be issues. But it does, at the same time, 
raise a lot of questions that I suspect we'll hear continue uh, to come up at the legislature about whether the state has figured out an approach to reward experienced teachers. I mean, I think a lot of legislators had kind of hung their hats on the idea that this master educator premium would be a way to reward veteran teachers. If they're not applying, there may be pressure on the legislature to figure out something else to do to, uh, to reward veteran teachers similar to the, the the pay raises that teachers have received at the front end of the salary right. schedule under the career ladder. So I think the on it's going to be an ongoing debate now about uh, teacher pay and veteran teacher pay. Well, that's a good point. And i got to tell you, Kevin, the reaction at the subcommittee was almost immediate from two legislators on that subcommittee. We have Representative Lance Clough, the chair of the House Education Committee, and Senator Dave Lint, a member of the Senate Education Committee, said... If the Master Educator Premium Program is not working in the way that we thought it would, maybe it needs some tweaks. Maybe we need to make some changes to make this a better, more sustainable program. And I think it was Senator Lent who suggested if we're offering something to the teachers, this $4,000 premium that isn't as valuable as another form of recognition, a chance at self-reflection, some professional development or maybe strengthening mentoring. Maybe we're looking at this wrong and what we're offering these educators. They may not be responding to this or this program may need some tweaks. And so I expect that conversation to continue throughout the task force uh, this summer and into the fall. And I expect this conversation to pick back up again during what we're already handicapping is a potentially very busy 2020 legislative session. Yeah, so I, uh, I think it'll be a talking point next session. Head on over to the homepage, idahoednews.org. We had two articles in the last uh, two weeks, three articles in the last two weeks, about the master educator premiums following the application process and the numbers there, then the reaction from the teacher of the year yeah. and the subcommittee. So yes, the homepage good. is a good place to yes, get caught good up. Good job staying on top of that. All right. Kevin, you had an interesting story this week, taking a look at some superintendent salaries, some salaries for some newly promoted superintendents, kind of tracking the highest paid administrators uh, throughout the state of Idaho. And you kind of started taking a look at the new Boise superintendent and, and then kind of rounded out and figured out um, some other salaries. So new Boise superintendent, Kobe Dennis, found out a little bit about what he's making, but then... Uh, He's not the highest paid superintendent. Tell us He's in a close. minute who is. Okay. Well, Kobe Dennis, who has been in the Boise School District for 29 years and had been the deputy superintendent, took over his job on July 1st. July 1st is kind of that transition date on a lot of these key jobs. Uh, Dennis will make a little bit more than $177,000 as a first-time superintendent to head the Boise School District. That represents about a $29,000 raise for Dennis from where he was as deputy superintendent. So it's it's a raise that comes with a promotion. I right. think that's important to keep in mind. But it places Dennis, as near as I can tell, certainly near the top in terms of superintendent salaries. Uh, we don't have all of the salaries, but based on what we've seen in past years, there's a pretty good chance that uh, Dennis's salary might be the second highest superintendent salary in the state. Second two, or I can't really do a drum roll well here. Oh, well done. <laughs> Nicely done on, on the fly. Uh, second two, uh, Gwen Carroll Holmes, the embattled superintendent of the Blaine County School District, she received a 2.4% pay raise this year. That brings her a little bit above the $180,000 threshold. That is a, that's standard with all of the other pay raises that Blaine County awarded. Right. Teachers are getting a 2.4% right. raise, administrators. But given the fact that, uh, and we've talked about this on the podcast a few weeks back, 
a lot of controversy surrounding Gwen Carroll Holmes at this point. You've had an online petition, more than a thousand signatures, uh, people urging trustees to fire Holmes. I can't imagine even a 2.4% pay raise is going to sit well with the, with the critics. Anyway, we have those numbers for, for Holmes. We have the numbers for Dennis. We have some numbers for some of the other superintendents in the big districts around the state. And we will continue to gather these numbers and, and track them down. But a snapshot of what we're seeing right now in the field, you can check that out at idaho.news.org. And speaking of Kobe Dennis, I sat down at length with him this week, and I will have a profile that we will drop next week. So you'll get to know the new superintendent, his background, his history as a Boise educator, as the son of a former superintendent in the Boise district. We talked about that. We talked about his goals for education. We even talked about his favorite baseball team. A lot of stuff there. It's a, it's a, it's a good profile in the works, and we will have that next week. I, I think that'll be interesting. Watch for that at idahoednews.org. But this is an interesting position. A longtime veteran of the district, leading the second largest school district based on enrollment, at a critical time for education. And right. one of the mm. things that I'll be interested to read from your article, Kevin, is kind of the approach that he'll take to policymaking. Will he be like his predecessor, Don Coberly, and be out there and active in terms of his presence at the legislature? Or will he maybe sort of take a back seat? Uh, and so that's something I'll be interesting to watch uh, out of your profile. And I think a lot of our readers will be interested we, we in that. We talk not only about that role that he might have to play, Dennis might have to play as superintendent in the Boise district, but we also got down to details about issues such as the school funding formula, right. where Don Coberly had been very outspoken. Very outspoken. So we talk about that. We'll get into all of that in the profile that we'll drop next week, and we can talk about it more in next week's podcast. All right. Another big story this week, could have been a top story almost any other week. You took a look at the rate, latest reading scores that we have at the K-3 through level. This is the new results of the new Idaho Reading Indicator Test, which has been uh, heavily promoted and talked about and in the news a lot. Literacy is a key focus right now uh, for the state. And so what what did we learn about where our youngest readers are at based on these results of the new test? I feel like what I know at this point is what we don't know and what we're going to wait to see when we get some more numbers. So what the State Department of Education released last week uh, were some very preliminary numbers and some very limited numbers that basically just showed you percentages of students right. reading at grade level on the spring version of the Idaho Reading Indicator. And there's some good news there. Uh, the numbers improved. Uh, as I did the math, there were about 14,000 or so kids who were not reading at grade level in the fall, but are reading at grade level now. So you saw improvement. Which you would expect and Which you would for. expect and you, and you have seen every year. That's I mean, the point of it, yeah. You, you should see improvement over the course of the school year as students get extra help, as teachers figure out which students uh, need the extra help and, you know, spend some more time with, with kids to get them up to speed. Because that's compared to the baseline with the fall when they first came Which in and were first tested. First walking in the door, Before the whole year of school. Just starting yep. their, their school career and, and first through third graders just coming back to school. So you did see that improvement as we've seen in the past. And you do see a fairly sizable number of students not reading at grade level also like we've seen in the past. The number this year, about 26,000 kids left school this year, mm -hmm. not reading at grade level, 26,000 K through three students. So that's that's the catch up that you will see this fall. Those are students who are going to be having to you know get caught up with their peers. Those are the students the teachers are going to have to spend some extra time with. You know, make sure that they 
you know, relearn maybe some of the things that they forgot over the summer because, you know, that happens with kids and, you know, work with these students to get them caught up with their peers. So it's, it's a fairly sizable catch-up role. What we don't know at this point and what I'm really going to wait to see when we get the, the detailed numbers in August, what are some of the school level results? What are the district level results? Where are the, you know, what schools and districts have had strong improvements? What uh, districts are maybe not seeing as much improvement? Right. What's happening with demographics? You know, what's happening with at-risk student groups such as uh, students with ling- limited English skills, uh, you know, Latino students, American Indian students, students in poverty, all of those demographics where we do see gaps and we have seen gaps in the reading scores in the past. So a lot to learn. And we're... At this point, we just wanted to kind of put the preliminary numbers in perspective. What did we learn? What are we still trying to figure out? And, you know, we'll have much more about this when we get the, the detailed numbers, but you can kind of see the breakdown of what we saw with the preliminary figures. Um, sat down, well, talked to Greg Wilson of the governor's office about the numbers, get a sense of what their take is. You know, Wilson's take is that you know, 73.5% of third graders were at grade level. That's a baseline. That's not a bad baseline. That's a, you know, as a building point as the state puts more money into literacy. I mean, this is Governor Little's top education priority. I was just going to say that. $26 million that he's trying to put into uh, literacy programs that the legislature did put uh, the extra money into these literacy programs. So these reading scores and these reading results will kind of inform where that money goes and will maybe shape how that money is spent and where that money is spent and what programs uh, are launched and replica- replicated around the state. Yeah, so, and it's a, a big, report here. It's one of the two big focal points for the governor's task force yes. as well. Uh, so literacy is important. It's a top initiative for the state right now. We'll continue to watch it closely. As, as we enter the lightning round here, a little bit of an update on the charter commission and that weird incident from earlier this summer where an executive, a closed-door executive session was recorded and then unintentionally released to the public. A little bit more of the fallout this week. Kevin, what would you learn? It's taken on a life of its own. Um, charter school advocates have, have latched on to this audio. And There's been have, a complaint. Uh, and... Right. And so they, they've latched on to some of the, the tenor of the meeting, some of the tone of the meeting, criticism of charter schools uh, such as the Heritage Academy in Jerome, Heritage Academy filed a complaint with the Attorney General's office saying that they believed that this executive session was illegal, that it went into areas that are not covered under the executive session law. The Attorney General's office is obligated to look into that complaint and uh, will look into that complaint. So we'll, we'll be watching as journalists and open government advocates. It'll be very interesting to see where the AG's office comes down on the executive session itself. Because, you know, let's face it, you know, this is something we deal with a lot around here. Uh, executive sessions that may or may not have complied with the law. We just went through it, went through it with the Emmett School District and its uh, superintendent's hire. So the executive session issue is really interesting here. I think what's interesting, too, is that this really exposes a rift between the Charter School Commission and some of the charter schools that operate under yeah. the jurisdiction of the Charter Commission. It, it's getting bitter. It's getting nasty. And you, you get a sense of that in the stories. Uh, we have a couple of guest opinions this week on the, on the Charter Commission, on this meeting, on the Charter School movement. You can see both of those at idahoidnews.org. 
we'll continue to follow the fallout from this meeting and uh, where it goes in terms of the legality of the meeting and this relationship, uh, the tensions growing between the commission and the, the charter school. So a lot more to get to on this one. We've <laughs> not, right. not seen the last of the story. And that was not our review, our year in review podcast, by the way. That was just the stories that we worked on this week. Uh, But a lot of good stuff. If you need to get caught up on anything, head over to the homepage at idahoednews.org. But it's been, Kevin, it's been six, seven weeks since you and I shared a mic together. You are just back in the country, but... uh, This is sort of the how we spent our summer vacation segment of the podcast. Because, you know, know, we both have had some really some cool adventures these past few weeks and just you know, wanted to share a little bit about where we've been. Clark, why don't you go first? Because you went first. Your adventure came uh, late May, early June. Late May into early June. I traveled to Nepal and I was there for almost three weeks and did the trek to the Mount Everest base camp. I didn't want to be clear, didn't climb the mountain, but did the long trek through Nepal up to the base camp. Which is an arduous thing in and of itself. I mean, it's, it's hard to get to the base camp. It was about, there's no roads. You can't drive there. Uh, so everybody who goes from Nepal to climb to the south side of Everest, everybody who goes there follows the exact same path uh, that I did. It was about 80, 83 miles round trip. Uh, over almost two weeks, and our starting elevation was around 8,600 feet all the way up to 17,500 feet at base camp. I was definitely feeling the elevation, uh, having a headache, like sick to my stomach, sort of like, I don't know, like it was even hard to like brush my teeth and like get into my sleeping bag at night at that elevation. Just wasn't it, it, it was really tough. And you've um, done high elevation climbs before. I mean, you did Grand Teton last year. I did Grand Teton last year. did a Colorado 14er last year. But, um, yeah, 3,000 feet higher than I'd ever been before. But it was awesome uh, being able to meet some local people from Nepal, visit their villages, stay in their tea houses, and then certainly uh, to be hiking up in the Himalaya. Uh, just everything was on such a... A bigger scale mm-hmm. you know some of my favorite mountains around here Mount Bora and the Grand Teton are huge mountains over there in the Himalayas just on such a, a different scale I mean Mount Everest tops out at 29,000 feet we saw two of the four highest mountains in the world traveled through glaciers and it, it was just an incredible trip I went with 22 other uh, people I was one of the oldest guys on the on the trip a lot of like 20 and 22 year olds every single person made it to base camp and it was just a, an amazing experience. It was quite an adventure. I was able to do it safely. Like I said, it was a challenge, and, uh, but in the best way possible. Uh, I, I felt great about it, got some good pictures, met some new friends, went with a basically lifelong friend from Kansas City where I grew up. Uh, we've been reconnecting on some adventures the last couple of years, so it's something I'll take with me uh, forever and, and, and treasure, and, and, and maybe I'll be able to reconnect with this group and do other adventures at other mountains in the future, but just an awesome way to totally disconnect, you know. Um, (laughs) No roads, very limited Wi-Fi, just such a cool trip. Um, And and even though there's been a lot of media attention, obviously, uh, with the the tragic climbing season on Everest and and the deaths on on the mountain this year, I mean, this is still, this is fabled country. I mean, you know, this is it was an amazing beautiful. country. It was beautiful, and it was inspiring to me. Uh, the weird thing about it, and I'm sure this freaked out some of my friends and, and social media friends back home, is Everest was in the news for the 11 people who yes. died climbing the mountain, for all the litter, for all the problems. 
Uh, and that's something that, you know, I did not see that firsthand. That's something that needs to be taken care of. You hate to see that. You hate to see those kind of tragedies on the mountain. But I had a completely different experience. It was beautiful. And it was not crowded where we were. We were coming in kind of at the end of the climbing season, just doing a trek before the monsoon came in. I had a totally different experience. It was beautiful. It was not overcrowded. Um, our group actually did remove some litter from the trail on the way back, but I understand why it was in the news, and I, I hope that didn't freak out too many of my friends, but I had a, a completely different experience that was beautiful and inspiring. Um, and, and so I had an awesome experience, and I would recommend the, the trek to anybody while at the same time acknowledging uh, the tragedies and how up high on the mountain, uh, hopefully things can change, and, and, and hopefully it can the safety can be improved. Um, well, we were glad you got back in one piece. Yeah, thank you so much. I had an awesome time. Happy to be <laughs> back. But your trip, you just got back, and you got to visit Europe, uh, experience some new countries, but also had a unique opportunity to perform. Tell me a little bit about what you've been up to and where your travels took you. So I spent two weeks in Belgium and France, and the... The crux of the trip was a tour that was put together by uh, Paul Aiken, who is the musical director of the Theatre of the Rockies. He's a composer of uh, uh, choral works, and we were able to debut two of his works in, in Europe. And one of those works is a piece that's based on the poem In Flanders Fields, which is this moving poem that was written by a, a Canadian soldier and, and physician during World War I. It's really an indictment of the the carnage of war, and it's it's taken on, you know, significance in Belgium and France. I mean, you know, it, it's sort of this iconic piece about the war that Paul Aiken set to music. We were able to perform at uh, at several venues in in Europe, including the Flanders Fields Memorial, where some three hundred American soldiers are buried, uh, you know, victims of World War One. We performed it again at Normandy at Omaha Beach. Wow. And, and you know, to perform and look at 9,000 crosses uh, from D-Day is, is so powerful. It's so moving. Um, we were also able to perform a work of his, uh, And None Shall Be Afraid is the title of it. It's based on five peace prayers from various faiths. And it's a, it's a work that really embraces and advances the, the idea of, of understanding and embracing our similarities as faiths as opposed to emphasizing our differences as faiths. Really powerful message to, to take to Europe. It was an honor to just be a part of the chorus seeing these works. And it was a chance to see Belgium and France, to do some sightseeing in Brussels and Paris and, and Ghent, which is this wonderful historic city in, in Belgium. Uh, you know, to, to do some sightseeing. But I guess my takeaway in all of this is because so much of the trip was centered around performance and centered around performance at, uh, at war sites, at, at graveyards, at memorials, it really brought home the impact of World Wars One and Two in a way that as Americans, I don't think we understand because we're not there. Right. Belgium was such a focal point in the end of World War One. Normandy was the decisive moment you know, the turning point in the war in Europe in World War II. To, to go to those sites and to be surrounded by that that, that history and that, that tragic history really brought it home to me and, and really resonated. I mean, there was one moment we performed at a city called Ypres in, in, in Belgium 
which was leveled in World War One. I. I mean, it was decimated, and they rebuilt the city brick by brick to look like it did before World War One. So every night they close off the main road. They have a ceremony at this gate, at this arch, and we performed there. And at one point, I looked across the road, and there were about a thousand people there on a Saturday night in June, no particular anniversary or anything like that, um, honoring the, the war dead. And I looked across the street, and there was an older gentleman who was taping us as we were singing, recording us on his phone as we were singing, and he was wiping away a tear. And I had to turn away. I was like, I am so close to crying right now. I don't need to look yeah. and see somebody crying. It, it was very moving. It was very, it was an honor to be able to to do that, and you know, to to be able to to share some of that music and try to you know deliver that message uh, overseas was was a really. I'll never forget this experience. And to kind of bring it back to full circle, it all began with education for me. You know, and when I was in high school, choir was my favorite class, my, my favorite class, my favorite activity. Uh, my choir teacher was a mentor then, still is a mentor, probably my favorite teacher from high school. I don't think I had the opportunity that I had this, this past month, if not for the experience that I had as a student, if not for the ability to sing in a choir in junior high school and high school. So, you know, when I hear people talk about music and education and the importance of music and education, you know, I, I get it. <laughs> I've lived it firsthand. So, you know, it, and I thought about that a lot on this trip as well. I think that's such a great way to underscore this trip and, and to end the podcast to talk about that seed that was planted. And, and that's a universal thing for you. It was being able to perform choral music in junior high and high school, and it created this lifelong fascination and, and this it led to this opportunity down the road but it could be a woodshop teacher or uh, an English teacher or a social studies teacher or whoever um, but I mean that kind of brings it home uh, the connection with education and, uh, and those teachers that do inspire you and how that lasts a lifetime and one of the and one of the cool things I saw in all of this so it wasn't just our choirs from Boise that performed one of the other groups that performed with us was a high school choir from New Hampshire from Nashua New Hampshire and I was standing next to some of those students when we sang at Ypres at the, uh, at the memorial. And, you know, they're high school kids. And while we're waiting, and there was a long wait, they were just kind of joking around, as high school kids do. But when it came time to perform, they really got the moment. They were really locked into it. And you could tell that they were moved by it in a way that I don't know if I would have been able to process it as a, as a 17-year-old like they did. Yeah. And it was really... I was so impressed by those those kids, and I spoke to their director afterwards and, and passed that on. I was just that was moving in and of itself to see students really understand this, and that happens in high school classrooms in, in Idaho all the time. You know, students really understanding their world in new ways through through educational opportunities. It was just this was just one I saw firsthand. Yeah. Well, thank you for taking a couple of minutes to share that experience, and thanks to our listeners for bearing with us the last five minutes. It's been a really important few weeks uh, for you and I both on some of these things that we've gotten to do. But, and this might sound a little lame or self-serving, but I just want to take a minute and thank Idaho Education News and my boss, Jennifer Swindell, who was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Um, not everyone would be cool with having such a small team and having their employees leave for two or three weeks at a time uh, to pursue their dreams and to go on these trips um, but that's another reason why I feel so fortunate 
to work at Idaho Ed News. I don't need to bore you with this, but it would not have happened, uh, I don't think, for either one of us without the bosses and the support we have from each and every one of our coworkers who really stepped up um, while we were gone. And so thank you and thanks to our listeners for indulging us these few minutes and for listening to our podcast and reading our articles. You're a part of this too, and, and so thank you. Right. And, and things get back a little bit more to normal here on the podcast. I mean, we'll be back now. Uh, we'll be back week. next Friday. We'll be back next Friday, and both of us will be back next Friday. Lots still to get to, a lot going on. Uh, I think we've tried to catch up as best we could this uh, this week with the podcast. We'll have plenty more next week. All right. Thanks, as always. We have a lot of fun breaking down this intersection of education policy and education politics. If you don't already, you can hop on Twitter and give us a follow at Idaho Ed News to see where we break all of our big stories and live tweet the big meetings. But uh, as always, thanks so much for listening to Extra Credit. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.